Hey there, and welcome to another edition of Inside Intercom. This week we're looking at something that's typically much easier said than done, becoming more impactful in the workplace without bending to the call of 60 to 80 hour work weeks. To give us some insight into how we can actually make that happen, I'll be joined by Edmund Lau, an engineer working on user growth and engagement at Quip, a workplace productivity tool. Following stints at Google and then a smaller startup, Edmund took a hiatus from the code base. He went out and picked the brains of engineering minds at places like Dropbox, Airbnb, Lyft, Square, and more about how they solve problems and ultimately what separated the best engineers behind those end solutions. The result is a collection of lessons learned chronicled in Edmund's book, The Effective Engineer. In our chat, Edmund describes what exactly defines an effective engineer. 80% of your impact is created by 20% of your effort. And so that 80% are the highest leverage activities. And the way that we be more effective as engineers is by being very conscious of like applying our limited time and our limited energy toward those leverage points. Why product complexity often leads to ineffective work. There's this cost of just having a very high surface area in the product because it means that you have to do more testing. It means that you need to maintain more systems to keep those features running. And you're spending a lot of mental energy basically keeping track of all of these, all this like huge feature space. And how he helps his team prioritize the highest impact tasks. Does this particular item contribute to our mission and in what way? Without that mission statement, without that clarity, it's very hard to juggle two different tasks and know sort of which one is more impactful. If you visit theeffectiveengineer.com forward slash intercom, Edmund's got a slew of curated content for our listeners. And while he approaches this through his personal experience with engineering, the principles he prescribes are relevant to anyone who works in a startup or product company. If you like what you hear and want to check out our full archive of interviews, you can subscribe to our show on iTunes or your favorite podcast app. And while you're there, shoot us a rating or a review. We obviously love your feedback, and it really helps new listeners find our show. And now, let's hop in the studio with Edmund Lau. You're listening to Inside Intercom. Intercom, making internet business personal at scale. Learn more at intercom.com. Edmund, thanks for joining us today. To get started, can you give us the cliff notes of your career and a feel for what you're doing today at Quip? Yeah, for sure. For the past decade or so, I mean, I've essentially been working in Silicon Valley. I joined you know, Google's search quality team right out of college, uh, worked there for two years. And then after that, it's just been a sort of whirlwind of different startups. I worked at a, one called Uyala, which focused on online video, later acquired by Telstra. Then I was the joined a team of like a dozen people at Quora, a question and answer site. And during my three years there, recruited the team to about 70. I led the growth team there. Um, also, also built out the onboarding and mentoring programs there. And Took a year-long, roughly year-long sabbatical afterwards to write my book, The Effective Engineer, um, and then now my Quip. I joined nearly three years ago when there were also roughly a dozen people, and I focus a lot on you know, how do we build, get users more engaged with Quip, and also how do we as a team sort of empower more engineers and technical leaders at the company to really you know, sort of perform at the highest levels. You mentioned your book there, The Effective Engineer, which I think was published about two years ago now. I think your process there was really interesting. Like you said, you took a sabbatical from the code base, and you actually went out and had conversations with engineers and leaders at other startups across Silicon Valley. I'm curious, when did you begin to seriously question this idea of, you know, there's a more effective way of engineering and a more effective formula? Was there an aha moment for you? Yeah, and actually to provide a little bit of context, I mean, I've always sort of grown up with this strong, like, hard work ethic. Uh, And I think it partly came from the fact that, you know, my parents grew up in communist China, and they didn't, like, going to college was not an option for them. And so, you know, they immigrated to the U.S. when I was, like, 
very little. Um, and I just grew up with this sense that, you know, I have an opportunity here that they didn't have and that I should be working hard to make the most of the opportunity. And so, like, throughout college, throughout the first two startups I was at, this idea of, like, working hard to make the most of the opportunity was a very sort of core idea in my mind. And so, you know, I'd be working, like, 70 or 80-hour weeks at Uyala. At Cora. I worked, like, 60-hour weeks. It was sort of reaffirming the story in my head that, like, I had to work hard in order to make the most of the opportunity I had. Mm-hmm. But then there were a few incidents that made me start to question whether that was the right premise I should be operating from. We had really talented teams of engineers at both Uyala and Cora, and there'd be projects that we'd spend, you know, months working on, right? There was a analytics module at Uyala that we spent a few months working on that we built for a customer, and then the customer just never used it. Right, the adoption wasn't there. Yeah, adoption wasn't there. Or, like, there'd be a feature that we'd launch at Cora, spend, like, months designing it, months, like, launching it, and then, you know, has, like, no impact on metrics. And so it started to make me wonder, what if we hadn't worked on that at all? What if we had just twiddled our thumbs for, like, those few months would our impact have actually been that much different? Um, and I think, like, if I were sort of honest with myself, it was, like, not really. It's because, like, we, we worked on the wrong things. And the fact that we, we were very well-intentioned and that we were, you know, a talented team didn't really you know, manifest itself in the impact that we were creating. And so I knew that there was, like, a missing variable there. There was something else that we should be paying attention to. And that's sort of what got me into this quest to, like, figure out, like, what is it that you know, makes an engineer more effective. Right, so you sort of step back and retrace your steps almost. Yeah, exactly. And so you've got this framework that was a product of that investigation called Leverage. How do you define that, and how did you come to the conclusion that it was the most effective metric for what you were seeking to measure? Yeah, so Leverage is defined as the your rate of impact over the time that you invest. So it's, it's your return on investment. I think a lot of us have heard of the you know, 80-20 rule, the mm-hmm. Pareto principle. You know, 80% of your impact is created by 20% of your effort. And so that 80% are the highest leverage activities. And the way that we be more effective as engineers is by being very conscious of, like, applying our limited time and our limited energy toward those leverage points. It's kind of like, you know, if you have a really, a really big boulder, it's, like, really hard to move. But if you have a lever to basically amplify the force that you're able to put in, you can move mountains. And that's sort of the mindset that effective engineers bring. They look for those leverage points, which can really sort of amplify the, the effort that they're putting in. Because that amplification effect is where they can sort of scale their impact beyond the limits of their own time. As we mentioned a few minutes ago, too, you've sort of went out and actually spoke to a lot of companies mm-hmm. and found real examples of people that were either doing this well or had learned this lesson the hard way. Yeah. Um, I think one on the example of doing it well that you've talked about is is Instagram, who at the time they were acquired by Facebook, I think had maybe it was 40 million users, but five engineers. You might have to correct me on those numbers. Yeah, exactly. But like, what were they doing there that startups today should take note of? Yeah, so, so they had this you know, very brilliant insight, which is that a lot of the cost that engineers pay comes from sources of complexity. Um, and they were very wary about introducing sources of complexity. When we think about the concept of complexity, there's sort of complexity on a bunch of different levels. Right. There's like code complexity, which is something that I think a lot of engineers are familiar with, right? If you have complex code, it's like really hard to ramp up on the code. Right. It's really hard to debug what's going on. It's hard to understand. Um, it's hard to refactor, hard to change. And so on some level, engineers tend to be good at identifying or seeing code complexity and like 
they have a desire to fix that. But there are also other layers of complexity that oftentimes get ignored. Um, so if you go sort of one layer above code complexity, there's also like system complexity. What are all the different types of systems that are in play for your product to work? Remember a couple of years ago, I was teaching this five-week workshop at Pinterest. And one of the engineers shared with me a story about how in the early days of Pinterest, they actually had seven different data storage systems. Like they were using MySQL, Memcache, Membase, MongoDB, Redis Cassandra, and Elastic. This doesn't sound like it would become an issue at all. Yeah. And their backend team only had three engineers. So that was like more than two systems per engineer. And what does that mean? That means that any effort to really build shared understanding around how these systems work, how they fail, gets fragmented. It means like libraries that they built for any one system that they work with isn't as strong as it could be. It means that they have to understand the failure mode of each and every system that they adopt. And so while they might have adopted these systems because each one pitched a benefit that they thought they could achieve theoretically, in practice it just meant that they had to operate and maintain each of these similar systems. And every new engineer who came in now had to understand like seven different data storage systems in order to be productive. This is an onboarding nightmare. Yeah, exactly. And so, I mean, eventually they figured out that, you know, the way to really scale their systems is not by introducing new types of uh, systems, but by having systems that they can basically scale vertically. They add more servers of the same type, really understand those types of services, and, you know, develop a much stronger expertise around them. And so that's where system complexity comes in, where like minimizing complexity in their systems is really important. And then you can go sort of one layer above that. There's product complexity. As engineers, oftentimes we're building a lot of features. Um, and we think about, oh, you know, is it, wouldn't it be great to basically have this feature out for users? But one thing that we don't think about is, you know, what is the cost that having this feature imposes upon our development process? Because every feature that exists in the product is something else that you have to think about when you're developing something new and about and how, that's, how this new feature interacts with all the old features that exist. And over time, it becomes harder and harder to add each incremental new feature because it may interact with existing features in any number of ways. And so there's this cost of just having a very high surface area in the product because it means that you have to do more testing. It means that you need to maintain more systems to keep those features running. And you're spending a lot of mental energy basically keeping track of all of these, all this like huge feature space. That could ultimately just become one big cobweb. Yeah, exactly. And so product complexity is also something that's like really important. And then you can even go one layer above that, which is like organizational complexity. Um, so when you have a lot of different products, when you have a lot of different systems, you end up needing a lot of different teams. And so you either fix that by hiring a lot of engineers or you have a lot of one-person teams. You basically make your teams really small so that you can have more of them to maintain all the pieces of systems and products that you have. And they both have their downsides, right? Like when you have a lot of one-person teams, it's easy for that one person to get demotivated. When like things don't work, they don't really have someone to bounce ideas off of. There's less sort of shared learning that's available. When you sort of hire more people to sort of support all these things, then you have this other cost, which is now it becomes really hard to just communicate. The friction of communication grows exponentially, and it becomes really hard for people to sort of stay on the same page. You spend a lot more effort just keeping people up to date. Mm -hmm. And so there's, in this organizational level, like another tax that you now have to pay. And so if you're not conscious about all these sources of complexity, you end up introducing these taxes on your development process. You introduce these burdens that you need to basically pay whenever you operate your service. And so going back to Instagram, like what they did really well was they would ask for any design that someone came up with, you know, is this the simplest thing? 
Um, they had a mantra, which was like, do the simplest thing first. And so they would be constantly be challenging themselves, and they would have posters saying, like, do the simple thing. They would be challenge themselves in design reviews, like, you know, is the solution you're, you're, you're describing the simplest thing that we could build? Because they recognized that every piece of complexity they introduced was another potential fire that they would have to put out. And with a five-person engineering team, if they were fighting fires all the time, they wouldn't be able to actually build and grow their product. Right, right. And a lot of our listeners are at very early stage companies where the people representing all teams can sort of fit in one room and have mm-hmm. that conversation. So at, at a foundational level, looking ahead to sort of alleviate those taxes to come, is it as simple as just asking that question over and over, or what else can they be doing? Yeah, I mean, I think step one is asking that question a lot. Um, it's being very aggressive and rigorous about what you actually want to introduce, what you need to introduce in order to build and scale the product. This other step is to develop a, not necessarily a process, but at least a habit of reviewing the taxes that may exist in the existing product. Maybe there are features that were built a while back that don't have as much usage as people would like. Could those features be cut? It can be a hard conversation, but the benefits of not having to maintain and like think about it and like deal with bugs and customer support issues that arise from it, those are very like concrete wins that you can get from cutting that particular feature. So just scope, scope, scope. Yeah, I mean, I mean scope, just like review. Mm-hmm. Um, like think about, you know, in a typical week, how much of your, you know, mental headspace is like spent on dealing and maintaining all of these different systems that you might have or all these different features that you might have and really be, you know, introspective and ask yourself, is it actually worth the time that you're putting in to actually maintain all these different pieces? So that plays in really nicely to another aspect of this whole equation, which is prioritization. Mm-hmm. Huge challenge at every startup. How do you keep your teams focused on high-impact projects as opposed to either snacking on something that's sort of low effort that chips away at a problem but is very low impact or even juggling too many of these high-priority things at one time, thus, like, nothing ever getting done? Yeah, that's a – it's a very hard problem. And I think there, there are a few different ways that I found effective at approaching it. I think the first – at a very high level, even like articulating a mission statement is something that can be very grounding and very clarifying for the team. Like on the enterprise engagement team at Quip, which I lead, we went through an exercise where we articulated, you know, what our mission was on the team. And it's to, you know, systematically accelerate the adoption of Quip and unlock its value for users. And that type of clarity helps us decide what we should be focusing on and what things we're not responsible for. And Knowing that means that now we have this lens to sort of view all the tasks on our task list. Like, does this, this particular item, does it contribute to our mission and in what way? Without that mission statement, without that clarity, it's very hard to juggle two different tasks and know sort of which one is more impactful. Right. In addition to having that mission, having some type of metric, some North Star, some top-level metric that you want to optimize for is also incredibly valuable because it allows you to really sort of compare different tasks in terms of the impact and the leverage that they might have. And so we also spend a lot of time, both at Quora and at Quip, just developing that top-level metric. Like, what is that North Star that we want to use to evaluate the impact of all the tasks that we're working on? And that's across teams, too, not just engineering, right? Yeah, across teams, too. And especially introducing that metric as a language that you can use to talk with non-engineering teams is actually extremely helpful because then it allows even, you know, people in other functions like customer success to start to quantify the impact that they have in terms of this like top-level metric. And it also means that engineering can then decide, okay, if we invest in more tools to make customer success more effective, 
what is the payoff of that versus sort of other changes we make in the product? So having this sort of single language that you can use to compare across just a variety of different aspects of work that you might do as an engineer becomes incredibly empowering because it gives you that framework for just thinking about all the different things. Just before we continue with today's episode, I wanted to let you know about Offscript. It's a new series of candid conversations with intercom leadership all about the extraordinary AI-driven transformation we're currently experiencing. Episode 1 is on our YouTube channel right now. Here's a teaser of what you can expect. I don't want to come across as overly dramatic, but for every single tech company, this is an adapt-or-die moment. It's inevitable that all businesses are going to go AI first. It's just a matter of time. In this post-AI world, new companies will rise, old companies will fall. Of course, some of these new companies will flame out. Some old companies will pivot successfully too. I don't think any of us could see a world where this wasn't going to be one of the biggest changes in the customer service landscape ever. The world we care about is customer service, and it's so patently obvious that the old way will be quickly obsolete. We're racing hard to build a future which will result in better experiences and results for customers and businesses too. It's not just a product change, it's a mindset change. Let's make space to talk about all of this. We have so much we want to share. We want to explore these ideas in the open. We want to provoke new ones in you. We want to learn from your reaction. You just click the kind of like big stupid go button, right, and see what happens. Welcome to Offscript. That's all to come on Offscript. The first episode is out now. You can watch it on Intercom's YouTube channel and we'll bring you audio versions of the episodes right here. Now, back to today's episode. When it comes to supporting that mission specifically, thinking about your engineering team, yeah. is there a set of values that you guys have at Quip? And we have sort of things on writing. Yes, they're on posters and it's a stereotypical thing, but they're a little bit more meaningful than that, like do less, better, think big and horizontally, be deliberate, take ownership. Yeah. Do you guys have anything like that in place? Yeah, I mean, it might be helpful to share maybe some of the values that we share on the uh, enterprise engagement team. You know, one, one is just like always be experimenting. So for us, because we're focusing heavily on growth, Experiments are where we can really connect the ideas that we have with actual impact on users. And also the launching of those experiments that finally sort of connect the work that we do with actually meaningful impact on the numbers. And so this idea of always be experimenting, of building a, a cadence of experimentation, that's something that's like incredibly important on our team. Another is just building intuition by validating hypotheses. So for every experiment that we do, we take the time to actually formulate a hypothesis around what users are doing or around sort of what we expect to change. And the experiment should either confirm, it's build confidence around the hypothesis or it should invalidate it. Essentially applying the scientific method to our experiments, each time we run an experiment, we make sure that we're actually learning something. We make sure that you know, we've constructed an argument for why this experiment could have meaningful impact on, on numbers. And then through the experiment, we develop a much stronger understanding of whether that's true or whether that's not true. Um, and then we can also decide whether we should continue investing in that area uh, in the future. Another important value on the team is just do the simple thing, uh, sort of very similar to how to the value that you know Mike Krieger and Instagram had in the early days. You know, because we have a pretty small team, like Quip in total only has maybe like 20 engineers. Um, and so being strategic about which corners that we can cut in order to build the minimal viable product is super important because we want to basically learn as much as quickly as possible. And it's only by aggressively you know, sort of cutting parts of the product 
of like a test that aren't necessarily needed that we can you know, basically optimize for our own learning. You mentioned the MVP there. How exactly do you define what's reached that threshold of viability? It's really sort of like the smallest unit where you feel like you can learn something from that product that you're building. Um, so actually about a little less than a year and a half ago, we did a redesign of Quip. And one tool that my team used was actually, we called it continuous user testing. So we would gather around every week and have this movie time where we weren't actually watching movies, but we were watching videos of user tests. Our, our basic flow would look like we would uh, make some hypothesis about uh, this redesign that we were doing. We would build out a small part of this redesign, and then we would you know, share a link to this new version of the product on usertesting.com. And within an hour, we'd basically get back videos of users self-narrating their usage of the product. And that was incredibly valuable just to have that like short feedback cycle, but also that detailed qualitative feedback about you know, what made sense, what didn't make sense, um, and see them interacting the product on the screen. And at our peak, like we were running like 12 user tests a week. I and mean, it just gave a lot of information that we couldn't have gotten nearly as quickly with just like an, a numerical A-B test. Right. And it, on each iteration, we would sort of try to identify, you know, what's the core thing that we want to test that we're not sure about and design a user test around it. And so every time we ran on one of these tests, we built a lot more intuition about which things seemed to be working, which things didn't seem to be working. And we were able to iterate like really quickly just by doing that. When you're doing these iterations, uh, looking at, at teams other than your own that are, are maybe less effective, do you see often that the hypothesis they're looking to testing to test can actually be stripped down a few levels and there's smaller tests they should be running to support that? I think there's a story in your book regarding Etsy in that manner. Yeah, so, so the Etsy story is actually pretty fascinating. They, at one point, wanted to introduce infinite scrolling into their search results page. And they built it out, spent like a few months building it out, in fact. And then when they actually finally decided to test it, uh, they found that it actually like hurt the revenue. Like it didn't actually have the positive impact that they thought it would. And so they spent a lot of time trying to figure out like why that was the case and also whether they could have figured that out sooner. And in their sort of like retrospective process, they realized they could have actually decomposed infinite scrolling into smaller testable hypotheses and that that would have uh, helped them spend less time on this area. So, for instance, you know, one hypothesis of infinite scrolling is that by showing more search results to users, they would buy more. But you can easily test that out by just increasing the number of results on the search results page. And so they ran that simple experiment, and they found that it did not actually increase revenue. Similarly, the other hypothesis was that, oh, infinite scrolling is faster, right? People can see more results faster. And so they got a little creative to try to understand how latency affected revenue. And they did that by actually running an experiment where they introduced latency. Since it was a lot more work to actually make the page faster, they did a comparison where, what if we introduced additional latency to the search results page? Um, how would that affect revenue? And in fact, like, neither of those two experiments gave them confidence that infinite scrolling would have worked. And so had they actually built out those two experiments initially, tested out those two hypotheses initially, they would have saved a lot more time um, from having made that investment to build infinite scrolling. And that's a, that's a very common lesson that I think a lot of engineering teams can learn as well. Um, like, how can we decompose our hypotheses into smaller ones that we can incrementally test? Because if testing a hypothesis takes months, you're losing out on a lot of potential learning there. Um, you can reduce it down to 
maybe even a week or maybe even less, then all of that learning will compound and will inform the future versions of the tests that you're going to run. We've talked a lot about stories and lessons inside of software, but I know one thing that you're a big proponent of uh, when it comes to actually increasing your leverage in the workplace is, is learning outside of the workplace. And I know you studied things like productivity, team building, psychology, self-help, et cetera. I'm curious, like, what lessons maybe more on the unconventional side have you learned there that can actually be applied inward to engineering work? Yeah. So I, I read a lot of books. Like I try to read maybe on average like a book a week. And I think one of the biggest lessons I've learned in this category of sort of self-improvement and sort of business books is really the importance of being mindful of your own energy levels. So there are a lot of scientific studies around willpower, like the, your ability to say yes to the things that you want and say no to things that you shouldn't be doing. And the amount of willpower that you have depletes as the day goes on. And so how do we use that learning to our own benefit? And really, it's sort of like one key insight is to be mindful of during which parts of the day you have the most willpower or where you have the most energy and to spend that time on, you know, the most creative things that you could be working on or the highest leverage things that you tend to procrastinate on. Because I think a lot of times engineers might know that, oh, you know, this is, some, this is something that's like really important, but it's also either really hard, really tiring, or they just like don't really want to do it, even though it could be really high impact. And if you pay more attention to sort of which parts of the day you have more energy and you can be better about sort of making a effective call on whether to work on or not, that's actually going to be pretty huge in terms of helping you be more effective. So for myself, I know that I tend to be a lot more creative and energetic in the mornings. And so I will schedule the things that I procrastinate on the most or the things that require the most creative energy for the morning before going about for the rest of the rest of my day. Because it's really easy, say, like at the end of a work day when you're, you're pretty tired, to say no to things that you, you know might be good to do. And so for me, at least, you know, scheduling those things up front in the morning uh, has had a huge impact. I'm glad I didn't ask that question after hosting you here in an afternoon interview <laughs> rather than having you here this morning. <laughs> Uh, one thing I'm curious to pick your brain about that you hinted at the top of the show is that you've designed onboarding and mentoring programs for engineers with Acora, and I think you're probably doing some of that now at Quip as well. Mm-hmm. What type of investment needs to be made there, particularly if you're uh, a team, like we sort of emphasize here, that's hiring for potential to make sure that your engineers can sort of grow into this, this more of a high leverage role? I started thinking about onboarding and mentoring at Quora when I remember there was one summer where our engineering team just doubled in size, which was super scary. We were doing continuous deployment at the time, so any commits would just immediately go to production, assuming it passed all the tests. And there was a pretty strong fear that, you know, with an introduction with so many new members on the team, that things would just be breaking all the time. And so when we were building out the onboarding and mentoring programs at Quora, you know, we spent a lot of time thinking about, you know, what are the goals that we want to achieve with this program? Um, and really sort of designed it around that. And so some of the goals were around, I mean, we want this new hire to ramp up as quickly as possible. We want them to be familiar with breadth of technologies and code and code bases that we have. We want to socially integrate this new member onto the team so they really feel like they're part of the team. And having those goals set allowed us to then figure out, like, what are the actual details? What are the actual tools that we can introduce to help onboard new people? And when we first started, it was you know, relatively simple. We just sort of assigned a mentor to each person, and we had these goals in mind. But over time, we sort of added more things that we thought would be helpful. We added onboarding talks for common abstractions and tools that we had. We borrowed this 
concept from Google called Code Labs. So Google had these wonderful documents where people would write out, you know, what's the reason behind this core abstraction that we have at the company? Um, why was it designed? What problem it's solving? What are the key pieces of code that you should look at to really understand what's going on? And also provide some exercises to just validate your understanding. And so that's a practice that we borrowed during my time at Quora, where we would write out code labs for a lot of the different core abstractions that were unique to Quora. And that really helped to make sure that everyone had a shared language when they were talking about the code base, when they were discussing the science. And that really sort of set the, the tone and the foundation for how they might then continue growing at the company. I mean, I know we got to wrap up with you soon, but before we go, is there anywhere else our listeners can go to read more of what you're written or see where you're speaking in the future? Yeah. Um, so I have a blog at theeffectiveengineer.com. If you're interested in the book, you can get paperback copies on Amazon, digital copies for Kindle and EPUB and PDFs on theeffectiveengineer.com slash book. And then as a special bonus for Intercom listeners, you can also go to theeffectiveengineer.com forward slash intercom and there will be a bunch of different goodies like videos and some of the most valuable lessons I've learned professionally um, that I'll share with you. Awesome. Again, that's the effective engineer forward slash intercom. Edmund, thanks again. Yeah, for sure. You've been listening to the Inside Intercom podcast. For more episodes, visit soundcloud.com slash intercom. If you'd like to subscribe, search for Inside Intercom in iTunes or Stitcher. And for even more great content, check out blog.intercom.com.